0: Dialoguing on South Asia, we explore the lives of its people, hear their stories on the histories of the land, discover its beauty, and encounter its conflicts, complexities, and harmonies in a search for liberty, peace, and prosperity interacting with leaders, activists, academics, and common folk from the South Asian sphere about their work and their passions, their dreams and their life journeys, their immigrant experiences, advocacy efforts, religion, politics, and so much more. With this, your host, journalist and author Peter Friedrich. Hand in hand, we meet and stand with South Asia. This is DOSA. Welcome to the show. And uh we're here at DOSA. We're speaking today with our, our guest, Leon Gante Gante, about okay. uh about uh, his life, his his experiences in, in Manipur, the northeastern state of, of India, and his journey to the US, to North America, and also about what's happening in Manipur today. So Lean, um, welcome to the show. How you doing?
1: Thank, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pr- privilege and an honor to be here. So I, I really uh, appreciate uh, the invitation. Well, of thank course, you. and it's
0: it's great to see you again. I, I think that the first time that we met was in Washington, D.C. in, in June a few Correct. months back, when uh, we were both there uh, protesting Indian Prime Minister Modi's uh, trip to the U.S. and uh, you were there with uh, fellow members of your own Kukizomi tribal community from from Monipur. Um, how did you how did you feel that protest went? Uh, what kind of what kind of impressions uh, did you walk away with from that protest?
1: Um, I think that was probably um, one of the major uh, you know milestones that we had because at that point everything was still so fresh or relatively fresh, uh, you know, and we're still trying to uh, come to to grip with uh, what had happened. And and in a lot of ways, uh, we were also still very naive um, to think that, you know, oh, we just need to uh, present our case in front of the world and in front of uh, Prime Minister Modi and his ruling party, and that surely they would do something that's sensible and, you know, surely they would hear our concerns and our, our voices, you know. So I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, we were really uh, very hopeful, um, uh, you know, at the protest, even though we were um, at the protest and raising our concerns, I think we were still very much full of hope. And, you know, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways also, I guess you could, say, naive in, in some sense, because we were very uh, passionate about what we were doing, but we were also, like, you know, very, I guess hopeful was probably the best term, okay. you know, that something something would come of it, you know.
0: Well, I know uh, that for yourself and uh, from my experience meeting a lot of the other members of the Zomi travel community here in North America, that uh, unlike a lot of the un- other members of the Indian diaspora, you are pretty new to the whole protest scene, the whole activism scene, and, and you've been drawn in for a very specific uh, reason of, of personal impact due to what's happening in, in Monaco right now. And I wanna get around uh, as we work through this conversation to talking about what's happening in Monaco right now and also talking about issues like how that's uh, personally impacted you, what you've been doing in that regard, and and. Uh, how maybe you've gained some experience beyond that naivete uh, since since back then in June, um, but before then, I, I really gotcha. want to get to know you, Lean. And and so I know uh, you you're I believe an engineer. You currently live in in Canada, somewhere in Canada. Uh, but um, you, uh, I want to hear some of some of your story. When did you come over from Moniper, for instance? Um, it was uh,
1: fall semester of uh, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga was uh, my introduction to uh, life in the U.S. You know, so I think uh, uh, before then, I, I was born in Imphal, Imphal Manipur, mm-hmm. um, in, in a hospital that used to be called RMC at that point, which is now RIMS, uh, you know, and most people from Manipur or even the Northeast would immediately recognize that acronym. Uh, so that's where I was born. Um, I went to school. Uh, in scenic school in fall which is like a military prep school mm-hmm. and uh, finished my high school in Delhi and then uh, um, yeah I, I had my own little experience uh, before I um, you know ended up in the U.S. and uh, yeah I don't know if you want me to just keep going on or yeah like, yeah if you want uh, I, I want to hear to about those those experiences
0: questions. like in fall Delhi etc let's Let's uh, get to that in a minute. Um, absolutely, I want to dig into it. Uh, but um, on the on the U.S. front, uh, you came to Chattanooga University of Tennessee, and w- what pulled you over from India? Why did you come? Um, at that point, uh, my
1: elder brother, my second brother, GT, had uh, been in the area. He had um, uh, he had kind of gone ahead uh, uh, years ago, I believe, maybe in 1986 or 87. So he had been there quite a while, uh, and uh, he was at uh Southern uh, Southern Adventist University uh in Collegeville, Tennessee, which is you know maybe just an hour outside of Chattanooga. In the Bible so Belt. He had kind of said, Oh, absolutely yeah, I mean I used to call it the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, <laughs> so definitely um, you know, kind of that's what kind of drew me to uh Chattanooga to follow him. And uh, yeah. Um so we're definitely from a very evangelical, you know, Seventh-day Adventist uh, Christian family. Um, so that's, yeah, so we kind of uh, followed that trail. And, uh, ended and then up, from uh, in, in from
0: Chicago. Tennessee, you ended up, I think you've told me you ended up in Texas and then uh, maybe elsewhere. Yeah, in the that States. Yeah. Was... And... And now you're in Canada. Yep. And I mean, as you were telling me, that, that it, it reminds me of this song, you know, that song, I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. <laughs> <laughs> From India to the US yeah, to, to Canada. Uh, so no, I, well, been... well, tell me about some of that journey.
1: Uh, yeah, so after um, getting through uh, college, um, and, uh, you know, I started uh, working in the Chattanooga area. So I think. A uh, majority of my experience in the U.S. Uh, was in the Chattanooga area. Um, and I think I uh, moved to Austin, Texas only in 2013, early 2013. And, um, you know, before then, uh, a few years earlier, I had applied for a permanent residency both uh, in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, in fact, I probably applied to the U.S. program at least three years before I applied to the Canadian one. But uh, while I was still waiting for the uh, American one to process and, you know, um, get approved or whatever you call it, the the Canadian one came through. So I, I decided to kind of take the, the Canadian bet and uh, moved from uh, Austin, Texas to uh, Canada in uh, 2014. Okay, well. uh, so, yeah, so I've... Uh, so I, I feel like I've kind of made a diagonal journey from the southeast in the US to, uh, you know, I guess many many people in the US would call it the north northwest, but uh, you know, on the west coast of Canada now. So
0: yeah. completed that triangle finally, and and you were an engineer the whole time, and and when when you came over, yeah, so. You, you said you already had a brother here too, like like, did you have other family here? Did you bring family from India uh, and, and that sort of thing? No, and then also on top I of think... that, on top of that, sorry to load you up with questions, Link. Um, no. But like when you when you tell me about like you applied earlier for U.S. versus versus for Canada, that is one of the aspects that I've heard in the past before talking with a, a lot of uh, Indian immigrants is that the Canadian process is just so much simpler and faster.
1: Uh, yeah, it's 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 way more streamlined, and uh, I think in a, in a lot of ways it's still. I mean, you can you can make arguments uh, uh, the the pros and cons of each each program. You know, because I think um, the the U.S. I mean, the last I I checked has uh, a significant amount of like a family reunification component of it. Whereas uh, the Canadian system, I think, is a little bit heavier on, like a points-based system, where you know, yeah. the, there's an active, um, um, you know, encouragement of trying to get people um, who are more like white-collar workers and like who the government deems will contribute to the economy. I guess you know. So, um, and I guess I, I I am a beneficiary of of that uh mindset but i think there's something to be said about uh giving importance to family reunification aspect as well you know
0: um was there any aspect of your one journey of two... i mean did you bring family over from from india with you
1: well in the u.s it was practically impossible because i was trying to i was struggling to get my own status uh more on a permanent basis right because otherwise uh you're just kind of having to uh, constantly renew your the H1B you know uh, work visa every 3 years and so on so far from bringing like you know uh, your extended family uh, but thankfully uh, since i've been in canada before my uh, mother passed away in 2021 at the height of uh, the covid uh, delta wave um, my uh, father and mother had uh, the opportunity to come and stay with us in Canada for a good two years at kind a of stretch, you know, so I I think, I, I think of those uh, times as, uh, like, one of the, uh, like, very, very fortunate blessings, uh, you know, um, for us to be able to spend that time together,
0: so yeah. am very grateful to hear that you got that last chance with your mother, especially right before COVID, when Travel was shut down, and you know, well, exactly. probably would have been very difficult to to reunite in that sense. Well, I want to hear then. I want to hear about Manipur um, and about India and, and your life there. So um, you you grew up. You, it sounds like you mostly grew up around Imphal, the Imphal Valley, which is like the main metropolitan area in, in Manipur. And um, you're from the, the Kuki Zomi tribal community, which I think is like 16, 18 percent of the population in Manipur, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was life like for you growing up? You said you went to military prep school um, and uh, all of that. Uh, but then you ended up uh, moving on to Delhi uh, for high school uh, to tell me a little bit about your time in Manipur and um, also can you for our listeners explain what exactly is a Kukizomi and in context of India, um, what's the tribal, uh, what is a tribal community member?
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bit. So if I, if I miss any of the points in the question, uh, I might have to uh, ask you uh, again, but of course, so let me just start Manipur and like, you know, what my experience was growing up Um, and and to be honest we again it's it's this very naive notion that uh, we had you know especially looking back uh, because w- we had differences like you know like manipur is no stranger to violence so in the context of what's going on today it's um and everybody loves to say that we're uh, a peace loving community everybody's a peace loving community and all, all this kind of which i i don't disagree with um and i i i think you know, if given the chance and the opportunity, everybody would want to be, uh, uh, want to have a peaceful existence, you know? So that I uh, I agree with, but we had our share of violence, but what is very strange about what's happening this year is there is a huge element of uh, like questioning each other's uh, existence, which, you know, growing up, I, I could have never imagined uh, the state, like my home state, Manipur, to uh, devolve into at any point, you know, because, okay, we had we had the Mete community, the majority uh, community in, in, in Manipur, and we had all the various different tribes, uh, I mean, like what you had mentioned, the Kukizomis, from like the most recent census in like 2011, I think about 16% is roughly what most people agree with. Um, I, I wish they had more up-to-date data, but uh, you know that's that's what we have. Um, but you know so in terms of um, growing up there, it was very much uh, like you you grew up with your own identity, but it was it was like a collective. you know like uh, I don't think there was any sense uh, of like questioning the indigeneity of anybody. Um, and when I look at the discourse now, it's 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 crazy, you know, because uh, especially the the, the Kuki Zomis in uh, Manipur are being like like the historical uh, the revisionism is taking place, especially you know in the in the at least the vocal section of the Meitei community. Uh, questioning our very belonging to the land and to that area, and uh, kind of almost as if we can somehow be um, erased out of the, the history of that area, you know, because it, it's almost like these, like uh, it's uh, like a bipolar uh, kind of argument. On one hand, that's, the, you know, we're presented as these immigrants, these people who were brought in, but then there are also academics. Who would argue that we're all from one stock, one ethnicity, right? If you go far back enough, so it's like, which one is it then? Like, if we're all from the same stock, then we can be like uh, you know, foreigners in our own land if 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 we share the same common ancestry, you know. So, uh, so that aside, so I think that's that's the sense I I, I grew up with is like, we're all one people, like, okay, we have different dialects, we have different languages, but any anybody from the outside, even forget about outside India, but even just uh, within the country itself, if people from other states come, or especially outside the northeast states come, I mean, we all kind of look about the same, you know, like, uh, and even for me, before somebody starts speaking, it's very difficult for me to identify, oh, this person is Kukizomi, or this is a Naga person, this is a a person. Um, so especially, you know, so especially
0: uh, uh, there in, in the info Valley, for instance, where you grew up now, my understanding is that uh, I think a majority of the Kukizomis uh, are a large p- portion of them. They live primarily up in the hills, in, in lands that uh, are actually because they're a tribal community, are constitutionally protected and, uh, and reserved for them uh, only as a tribal community. Absolutely. But yes, down within yes. within and- Infall in, in the valley, um, it sounds like everybody's pretty much just all mixed together.
1: Yes, a- absolutely, and and so I think I'll I'll kind of just um, get on to that. You know, the w- what it means to be a tribal in the Indian context, because uh, uh, it, it's it's not like uh, uh, like just a generic thing about oh you you feel a belonging to this community and you become part of that tribe, right? So it's a, it's a constitutionally recognized uh, Scheduled Tribe. There's a like a a, a very well defined list of uh, people who who have this constitutional protection because they've been historically marginalized and um, you know need some kind of upliftment uh, societal upliftment. So in terms of um, uh, its nature, like an affirmative action, like nature, you know those things are kind of what is enshrined in the Indian Constitution to
0: kind of. Uplift, I like this, like like affirmative action in terms of college admission, government jobs, and stuff like that as well, up, right? Yeah, correct,
1: correct. So I think if I'm not mistaken, about seven and a half percent of uh, jobs and uh, different, you know, institutional reservations are you know kind of allocated for the scheduled tribe, um, and you know, and and again, this goes back, you know, and our appreciation and gratitude goes back to the you know one of the founding fathers of our country dr Bhimra ambedkar you know who who's who's uh, probably the the greatest dalit leader and i would even call him the greatest indian leader above everybody bar none that would be my statement there is no other leader in indian history who is more important for uh, scheduled caste and scheduled tribes than dr bhimrao ambedkar you know, uh, and I think and because of his vision and because of his, um, you know, forward thinking uh, mind, like we have had the protection and this kind of uh, opportunity, you know, for the whole uh, community. You know, it, it was all the things-
0: enshrinement of reservations in the Constitution, especially being one aspect. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah him well, to that for anybody that uh, is listening and, and understands what that means um Absolutely. and um actually hoping to get an embed card right on the podcast uh within uh the near term and and dig into the whole issue Absolutely. of of embedkarism and who embedkar was and uh, the dalit movement and caste issues then caste issues now and and so on and, and so forth um now uh it's interesting for me then to hear that you're from involved because um, i was going to ask you to paint me a picture of what village life is like in a kukizomi zomi region but it sounds like you're more of a grew up as more of a city boy so i'm not sure if uh, that will be something you can quite so easily do um but but i, I am interested um a couple of things within that context then so whether it's for the Kukizomi people, I, I guess in particular, or Manipuri's in general, um, how would you describe the the, the situation? Because I, I know the Northeast is very geographically cut off from the rest of India. Um and I've heard people say that um it, it sometimes seems like it's kind of ignored. Um as far as the the life of the people and the opportunities for them, um, and you know, especially of course for for people that are, you know, more and more of a minority, like, like getting down to like the Kukizomi tribals. How, what are the opportunities like for, for jobs, for education, for, for social mobility? I mean, obviously, um, you, you became an engineer, you traveled internationally, you settled uh, in North America. Um, how much uh, is that sort of thing, that type of higher education, that type of um, uh, international uh, professional uh, possibility uh something that's present there for for monopurries in general or for kukizomis in particular
1: yeah i think uh I, I probably uh give you a little bit of a long answer on, on on that one peter because first if you just look at the size of our uh, like the demographics itself we're not even like barely, if you even if you put everybody together, like the highest estimates would be maybe like a million, million and a half, maybe, you know. So, are when this you is start, zombies
0: or Manipuris?
1: No, Manipuri, uh, like Manipur as a whole is probably less than four million itself, right? So, it's like we're just a very tiny fraction of the Indian population, you know. So, it, it, like in most cases, in most calculations, we're not even the margin of error. Uh, You know, so in that sense, if you kind of extrapolate that uh, to, you know, India is a billion plus, and you extrapolate the, uh, you know, diaspora community in other parts of the world, or especially, you know, uh, we're talking about the US North American context, you know, it's, um, it's still a very small fraction of the larger, like billion plus uh, people um, in India, right? Yeah. So when you, when you start thinking about it in that sense, and you look at our community and then like my story in, in a lot of ways, my story is a very, very common immigrant story in North America, but in, in a sense in for, for my people or like for people who come from um, the Manipur or like from this part of the world, especially from the tribal uh, folks, it's, it's a, it's, also like a very unique story because like not too many of us have that opportunity to uh, venture where we did. And we, I just happened to have the uh, fortune of uh, my, my, my parents being connected to Seventh day Adventist missionaries and like uh, through, through their connection, my brother finding his way to Tennessee and me following them. Like it's like, it's, it's only a handful of people like, and we, and we can almost count the families because we all kind of know each other. Um, you know, it's a very small community. We kind of know each other. So in in terms of opportunities, I think what has happened over the decades uh, since independence and because of Dr. Ambedkar's uh, grand uh, vision for all the oppressed uh, communities of India, like there have been significant number of people within tribal communities and specifically within the Kukizomi Society who've been able to, um, you know, work hard and take advantage of these reservations and kind of uplift themselves, right? And part of the reason why this, the recent violence starting in uh, uh, on the 3rd of May is so hurtful is that all those decades and generations of people who worked really hard and who made something of themselves and who advanced themselves economically, they built their nest eggs in in, in the Imphal Valley, right? And there were only a small number of people who kind of went back to the hill districts because obviously it's just a human nature. You go where the facilities are, right? So uh, if there's no infrastructure and economic development and services and different things in the hills, very like a few people, you know, want to live and settle there. So my family was one such example where... We've uh, lived in Imphal. Um, you can argue right from uh, independence, maybe even pre-independence, mm-hmm. right? So even though we are uh, hill tribals, like our connection to Imphal, if not stronger, is as strong as uh, to the hills uh, uh, itself. You know, and so much so that um, my uh, sister-in-law is a Meitei, for example. You know, and uh, our our family was the only family for a, a long long time in, in a like in in a, in the middle of a, a meethi community we didn't even live in like uh, like a tribal colony or you know a tribal settlement in that sense so and um say that i guess what i'm trying to get at is um one of the factors that has caused this kind of resentment or the way i understand the resentment between the or like resentment from the Métis side is this argument that because of this scheduled tribe reservation we've we've progressed too much right we've taken up all the uh uh government uh you know bureaucratic positions whether it's in civil administration or in the police service or what what have you which it that i mean i would i would argue that's also like a bogus argument but let's say for example like i'm just saying what the other what I've heard the other side say, you know, so it's it's kind of, yeah. 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 So it's, 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 it's sad because it's like, whatever progress we've made, it's been taken away in an instant, you know, like um, you'll hear all kinds of stories, like even like our, our, like the the Namta president, uh, Florence Low and uh, Nyang Hangzhou, like their parents were one of the pioneer people in in, Imphal, in 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 who you know who 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 were uh, the the founders of these colonies and the churches they built, the homes they built, you know, after decades of their own work, that's been kind of uh, destroyed overnight. And just you know, just you...
0: uh, just a sidebar for our listeners: uh, Nyang and Florence, as you just mentioned, Nanta nanta is North American Manapur Tribal Association
1: right i'm i'm sorry i'm, I'm I, you know i'm i'm talking uh, because i have kind of met you before so i'm kind of talking as if everybody knows that uh the finer details i, I apologize that's uh, what
0: i'm here for is to is yeah. to hone in on on <laughs> unwrapping those uh finer details for for broader Thank audiences you. yeah go ahead
1: so yeah so you know and uh the pity is for those of us in the in the state of Manipur, uh, I think mostly we're reliant on government sector jobs, right? Uh, and the the private sector is still very, very uh, young and pretty much, I mean, for all practical purposes, you can say non-existent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, because a- anybody who wants to uh, progress in life, uh, I think the the an option you see as viable is uh, getting a government job. You know, to, to get a steady income and all that kind
0: security, of security, so benefits, pension. Yeah, I've I've also yeah. seen that. Yeah. I, I can imagine it being actually uh to, to a certain degree being uh, maybe a bigger issue in Manipur, but I've seen that kind of more broadly within India. of course, within within the whole of India, there is a lot of private sector, but that many people, especially from um uh, middle or lower classes that's what they see is really the the biggest uh thing to strive for because there's so much security <clears throat> offered there within an unstable uh environment
1: right right so yeah it's uh yeah i don't know if you want me to elaborate more on that uh because i'm i mean if you allow me i think i'll just keep uh talking about that sure <laughs> yeah go ahead um what you know, does, so yeah. i think yeah so the um the the issue for us like in, in terms of not having that uh economic opportunity um you know even though i think uh, a lot of people would argue that in in the last decade or so there have been more like uh call center jobs and that kind of stuff but even for that like people have had to leave their home states go to delhi bangalore who elsewhere you know and uh um so the reinvestment in the local economy especially for um the the tribals uh and when i say tribals i i, I mean not only the means, but e- even including the uh, the naga community uh is um like very very bleak and in fact uh in terms of just comparing like uh the the state government budget in terms of the infrastructure i, I believe uh Alfred Arthur, who himself was a uh, member of the Legislative Assembly from the Naga community, himself is a tanko. He, he presented like a very detailed budgetary breakdown when he was uh, uh, an elected member. And I think what he clearly showed was, I think uh, maybe 90-95% of the budget was uh, permanently allocated to the Valley districts. And, you know, like five or less percent was um, thrown as scraps to the hill districts you know so and that is like you know, when you visit uh, the uh, the state of manipur and you, you just do a basic survey like it's it's apparent for anybody to see you know so that was kind of the backdrop of um, you know what this or, or before the violence uh, that, that erupted you know this year so that's that's kind of the backdrop of what uh, what we had. Um, you know, and not to mention the permanent uh, uh, political imbalance where in a legislative uh, assembly of 60 seats, 40 of them are, I mean, for all practical purposes, permanently in the hands of the majority Mete community, right? So, yeah, it's it's been a, um, but having said all that, The thing is, before May, before May of this year, we still like had a sense of belonging, you know, like uh, my whole family, including my in-laws who are Irish Canadians uh, here in Vancouver, where I live, we had planned to go to India uh, to visit my mother's tomb and for my kids and uh, uh, my spouse to go and visit. Um, in fall, you know, so like that was we were supposed to visit, uh, end of July, um, and stay there for, um, you know, three four weeks, and you know, uh, it never felt uh, it never felt like a like a foreign uh, a foreign land, you know, like because <laughs> it was like we were we always saw ourselves as as indigenous as anybody else, you know. And, well, um, and I want to I want to lead into
0: judge, yeah. I want to <laughs> lead into some of those feelings. I mean, you say it never felt like a foreign land. I mean, you were just planning. It just felt so welcoming that you were uh, just about uh, ready to take your whole family there, um, including. It sounds like your wife's uh, not a, even of Indian origin. Like that safe, that welcoming that you, you wanted to go, um, and clearly very different today. But um, as you've already hinted at, there's there's a number of uh, ways in which there's not been peace um, in the past. And, and just for our listeners, I want to lay a little bit of uh, background from what, from what I understand is way back when, when India was under the British colonial rule under the British uh, under the British Raj, Manipur itself was not actually directly under the British Raj. It was what's called a, a princely state, which was like nominally independent and had basically uh, some level of sovereignty due to treaties with the British. Then in 47, 1947, when India, when the Republic of India got independence. The uh, Maharaja of, of Manipur uh, acceded, uh, signed over the country uh, to join the Republic of India, which apparently, from my uh, research, not every uh, resident of Manipur was entirely happy with. And over the ensuing years, as the Republic of India has, has, has developed, um, especially, I believe, since the 60s, uh, there's been a level of, of conflict, including violent armed conflict, uh, within Manipur. With uh, in 1980, as I understand it, um, the government of India, the central government, actually declared Manipur to be "quote unquote" a, uh, I believe they called it a disturbed area um, or an area of disturbance, and they slapped uh, over Manipur uh a law a national law which is known as uh afspa afspa or the armed forces special powers act which gives like the armed forces of india basically impunity uh to operate uh as they will without really any any restraint of law within the region um so that where that law is applied so in this case within the region of, of manipur And then that was 1980. Then uh, come about 91, I believe, there was an actual armed insurgency which broke out in in Manipur with uh, some groups seeking uh, actual independence from uh, India. Uh, Within all context of all of that, um, you know, there was ongoing ethnic conflicts uh, as well uh, that were also, I I guess, like tied to um, this insurgency at the same time that was being waged uh, against the republic. And obviously, every region is, is different in its own unique, uh, special way. But this does, uh, in some ways, remind me of of the situation in Kashmir and in far north India, where there's just been ongoing conflict for decades. Uh, they've also had an insurgency, and it's been a it's been like a almost like a war torn zone um, to, to a large extent. Um, with a lot of fatalities, um, a lot of uh, brutalities being committed by the armed forces and by, by the uh, militant armed groups as well. Uh, but the key issue that I'm here uh, interested in, in hearing your perspective on, on Lean, is, you know, were you in Manipur? So I believe you would have been about 11 uh, when this insurgency broke out. Um, and I, I understand you did go to Delhi for high school, but uh, I'm sure you still maintained uh, quite a bit of connection uh, back to Manipur. Um, were you um, in Manipur during any of this? Did you experience any of this, or directly or indirectly? Um, how did you feel about that then? How do you feel about that now? How do you feel like that shaped your psychological uh, perception of what Manipur is like as a place? And and then. We'll get to some of the details of this uh, as well, but kind of touch on a little bit, like how how is that different then versus versus now? What's happening?
1: Yeah, and Peter, um, like um, I, I I'm not gonna claim to be like a, a, a historical expert in any way, uh, but I think um, going back to the administration of the region, uh, even during the British Raj. I think, I don't think it's totally correct to say, well, th- that, that itself is, um, um, it's not a settled issue, right? Because um, the argument is always like, when you say Manipur was administered as a princely state, um, a lot of the uh, tribal academics will vehemently argue that the hill districts were never under the jurisdiction of the Meitei king. You know, um, sometimes the tribal chiefs allied with him, sometimes they fought with him. You know, and maybe during different conquests and different wars, the 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 size or the periphery, the the definition of the uh, valley kingdom might expand and contract.
0: Yeah, right? I, I think but I think that's the, one of the things general, as 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 modern yeah. thinkers familiar with the nation state concept that we've had for for you know quite a while now. That's one of the things that we tend to draw this uh have this like kind of black and white hard cut view of these territorial boundaries yeah. of, of not even the ancient world but like the world 100 200 years ago um where where we don't keep in mind that administration was not always like so uh, neat and pretty yeah. as, as it tends to be today and it,
1: it was it's it, it has been a very like difficult um um uh, administratively it's it's been a difficult region right especially also because um, you know and the Kukizomis are very proud of this fact uh, that uh, uh, from 1970 to 1912 there was a, uh, there was a huge rebellion against the British uh, themselves um, you know, uh, from the Kukizomi uh, uh, tribes and they, they fought is that uh, 18 with them, 1870 uh, to 1912? 19, 1917 to 1919 okay uh, so there was a two-year two-year guerrilla warfare waged on the British administration um uh, by by the Kukizomi tribals right and uh, but even that even that for example uh there there are like uh attempts at even wiping out uh, that historical fact uh, uh, as well you know but it's it's a very clear there are like uh, way too many too many historical markers for that to be just so easily erased. Uh, so, but what what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that the the history is much more deeper and more complex um, than like what people try to like you know uh, present it uh, to suit their own narratives or propaganda, right? And so, so when when you think back in in those terms, uh, when the British left India, I mean obviously, you know, they left a big mess. (laughs) So it was, uh, um, uh, but then the integration of the area that we now think of as Manipur, that itself requires like a much more, like we could probably spend a whole uh, podcast just addressing that issue, you know, like the integration of how that happened, you know, how, Manipur was initially a union territory. Well, there is a phase between independence and the merger agreement that was signed by King Bhupendra, uh, for example. Like, it, but because even that, like what you mentioned, even within the Meitei community, there's a huge uh, um, disagreement. You know, between because there's um, uh, I don't have the uh, you know uh, resource with me right now, but. There's a group uh, in the UK who had declared uh, independence of Manipur from the Indian Republic. Uh, this is like a couple of years ago. They they had a press release and all kinds of stuff, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and and they don't even like this group. Uh, from what I remember, don't even uh, recognize the the current uh, you know um, the, the the titular king of uh, uh, Manipur, like the the Rajya Sabha MP Sana Jabha, uh, you know so so it's almost like they have their own thing going so w- when you look at um this whole northeast uh, did, did region, you say
0: did you say you the know. current king of manipur
1: yeah yeah who is also uh, a member of the Rajasabha, the upper house of the indian parliament
0: okay yeah cuz i I'm, I'm i'm aware like this uh, in areas around india so technically manipur still has a maharaja but he's—I'm uh, guessing—probably ceremonial power only. But yes. he's—he's he's also—he's also like from the royal family, and now he's a member of uh, Rajya Sabha, which is upper house of of parliament. Correct. Correct. Uh, so, uh, I an interesting fa- interesting fact right there. But yeah, not, not yeah, to not and, to derail and, too much.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I think it, it's really easy to get sidetracked because, um, especially, uh, you know, this this is a point that I I cannot. Uh, brush aside because his father, his the 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 current young king, his father, Maharaja Okendrajit Singh, was the one who gifted our family home in Imphal to my mother with his oh, wow. own handwriting, handwritten stamp paper, which you know I have a copy of. And you know, um it's it's one of like he even even though I was very young, you know, when he was still alive, I still remember him being one of the nicest people, one of the most down-to-earth royal you'd ever meet in, in your entire life. You know, so he was such a sweet and humble character. And then to see his son become some some sort of, uh, like the leader of the Arambai Tengul, which is one of the militant groups who have been spearheading uh, this, um, you know, ethnic cleansing of the Kukizomis and like leading the attacks on uh, on 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 my tribe. You so, know, so it's it's really so strange it's, so to so see. So
0: the, the king is today now connected to this Arun which is this militant. Group? Yeah,
1: that that is that that's been very clearly established because um, a lot of the like their Facebook pages and different things. Because initially, when uh, like all these militant groups, for example the Arambai Tengol or the Lepun, Lipun, uh, when they first kicked off, I think most people, at least in the tribal community, thought it was, you know, just another like cultural revivalism, you know, like an attempt to kind of bring back the old uh, uh, culture and tradition. And it, it was viewed as, oh, it's it's really neat, right? Like, it's a, okay, it's a, it's a great uh, f- attempt at uh, trying to revitalize your culture and so, all that, that, uh, kind of like
0: also. kind of like and I've I've seen that comparison before with another group that we've already talked about on this podcast before the Swayamsevak Sangh RSS uh, within uh, mainland Absolute. India which has uh been compared to and itself compared uh, calls itself a cultural group but Eileen can we put a pin in that uh for a minute? Um, because i want to yeah, i want to sure. preface with um your thoughts uh wrapping up on on the insurgency just a little bit because you were alive when that when that broke out and then uh moving on to i want to ask you about um Aram Sharmila and, and and a little bit of, uh, about that yeah, perspectives yeah. um with the uh, last uh with the insurgency i mean you were young then it's and, and, and like i said it sounds like you were in may already have been in delhi um but if you were in Monaco? not, or... not quite not quite yet not okay.
1: quite yet peter so if, if i may just jump in there because i yeah. i think i i have a habit of kind of extending the uh, the the answer and kind of uh losing the the, the original question a bit but oh, i i guess what i was coming to is this whole um insurgency movement like i think the uh naga insurgency movement you know will will probably be the 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 oldest if if i, if I if i remember correctly right so the insurgency movement like um under uh the naga leadership that had been kind of ongoing uh, pretty much since independence right and then you had um like uh, what you were saying the uh the the meitei insurgency groups um you know starting in the 60s and 70s if i'm if i'm sort of correct with the unlf and uh PLA KCP all these different groups, you know, so it's it's been an ongoing thing. Uh, but the what you what you were talking about in the early nineties that's kind of actually when I um, uh, started sending school. So it was right around that time in the early nineties um, when um, yeah, when this thing kind of exploded. And uh, actually, one of my uh, you know fond memories is like the uh, coming down from Kohima in Nagaland. Where my mother was posted, and I was um, uh, staying with her, but I had, I had to go to uh, Imphal for my semi school uh, interview, you know, entrance exam interview, and uh, I had uh, I had to walk from uh, Mao Gate, which is the, the first town when you enter uh, Manipur from Nagaland, Mao to Senapati district, uh, the headquarters. I had to I had to walk there. I I, I don't remember exactly. It was a little a little over maybe forty plus kilometers. And, and when we walked, uh, I had I had a cousin with me, like you know, the two of us walked together with other other people who were stranded because there was a blockade, uh, like a bun we call it, you know. So at that point, uh, the there was a uh, you know insurgency had started up, but uh, I remember spending a night in this Naga village called Maram uh, along the way, along the highway, and it was just random, you know, we just kind of asked for shelter overnight, never met them. This invited us into their homes, let us sleep on the floor. And, uh, you know, so it was that kind of, I I feel like, and that was kind of a very common thing to happen, you know. And then a few years later, like the Kukinaga uh, conflict broke out. And then uh, around that same time, there was also... Um, Like uh, Metis and the Metis Pangals, the the Muslim community, there was also a big clash that broke out uh, between the Metis Pangals and the Metis as well. So, like, you know, we we had these conflicts, but at the same time, uh, there was also like a level of recognizing your opponent. Even while you're fighting them, you recognize
0: and you respect their being, you know, where. Like, like kind of I, like fighting fighting with honor you're not dehumanizing the yeah, opposition sort of for, for
1: lack of a better you know example or better analogy yeah you you had this way of having a conflict with some honor right whereas now the dangerous or like i shouldn't even say dangerous but the alarming thing that I'm, i i'm finding right now is that the lack of even like the basic dignity Of kind of like, for example, like the people who have been lying dead since early May, they're still lying in morgues. They're not even letting uh, letting us claim the dead bodies. And whatever pretext it may be, like the, um, uh, I think the state government uh, uh, even uh, had the audacity to argue that it could be like some illegal infiltrators or different things where it, it's absolutely you know uh, beyond belief that this is this is the level of um animosity that that has kind of cropped up you know it's not even even in death there is no decency you know and uh but anyway sorry i, I, I didn't mean to uh, get off on that
0: but... no no apology necessary i i think that's uh very uh, appropriate to, to dwell on um, that. And, and we're gonna get to very soon here, some of the details of what's happening in, in Monipur right now, but just that point that even in death, there's there's no treatment with dignity, because I've, I've heard this, that the bodies of the dead are being left there to rot. And nobody's allowed to even go out and, and bury them. But last thing before uh, we move on to uh, digging into what's happening in Monifer right now this year, is um, I wanted to ask you about um, this woman, Irome Janu Sharmila, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm interested to uh, ask about uh, your perspective also because I, I personally uh, know her husband. Um, I've been a guest in his house in the past uh, when she was still on hunger strike before he was her husband. Um, now, Iroam Sharmila, um, she's from uh, Manipur, from Imphal, and BELIEVE. She was. Uh, she's known as the world's longest hunger striker. She was on hunger strike for 16 years, force-fed throughout that time period, but refusing to eat or even drink water. Um, she started hunger strike um, in response to a massacre, I believe the Molom massacre, uh, if I recall Malone, correctly, Molom yeah. massacre in, in 2000, um, where armed forces in Manipur, uh, in Impal, they, they or in Molom, I guess, uh, they gunned down 10 civilians at a bus stop. Uh, there were there was no repercussions for them. They had impunity. And so IROM uh, went on hunger strike. Now, interestingly enough, in context of what's happening today, IROM is, um, and I always have to, since I began learning about the uh, ethnic conflict uh, and the uh, dispute there that's happening, I always have to make sure I get this correct because I, I know Kukizomi. But my, temp- my earlier on, before I got the pronunciation down, I kept saying uh, Mai Tai, which is the drink, not the not the community. It's mate. Irom is from the Irom is from the mate community, the majority community. Um, but um, she's uh, went on hunger strike. She became known as the Iron Lady of Manipur because of her refusal uh, to give up this protest. And I wanted to ask your perspective um, in context of what she did. Uh, back then considering what's happening today i mean you have already described how growing up that there you had a sense of identity but there wasn't really like this animosity or or, or like uh, lack of intermingling um when she was doing that um was what kind of response did she get from the people of Manipur, especially the people of manapur across ethnic lines
1: yeah i think that's uh that's a very in, in in some ways, it's a complicated question, uh, but it's also a very important question because it ties in many many different things together. And um, and before I um, you know answer that, if I may, also kind of go back to because um, I don't think I I touched the AFSPA question that uh, you had asked uh, earlier with the arms for armed forces special powers act. You know, yeah, the just, more
0: groundwork laid, the better
1: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah so it's i uh, mean i mean as an engineer i'm sure that's always something on your mind anyways is you you know if, if you want to build something you have to do it in a certain motor yeah yeah and
1: so it's you know and like i think you've already alluded uh, to many times it's an extremely draconian uh, law uh that i think most people would trace its origins to the British colonial days, and it's been updated several times and applied uh, conveniently where the central government deems necessary. Whether it's in Nagaland to, uh, you know, counter the Naga insurgency, or in, in Kashmir, or in like uh, Manipur, and, and so on. So in a way, and as a cookie, as a cookie, is the only person, uh, I'm also uh, a little bit conflicted because as as, uh, as a normal decent person, I think uh, anybody should be opposed to giving the state that kind of power. Um, you know, because it's such a huge draconian law, uh, and it gives such a free hand to the armed forces that it's it's like I I think it would it would be very fair to say it's 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 a very very anti democratic law, right? Yeah. Uh, but we're in a position right now uh, where th- there are certain segments of the Kukizomis who are demanding AFSPA to be applied throughout the whole state because AFSPA has been lift- lifted from the valley districts, but they're still in effect in the hill area. <laughs> so, you know, the, there's a huge conundrum there, right? So it's like, it's almost like saying, you know, I- I'm in this crap and you're like, you know pitting me against somebody else who is not in this crap so i want all of us to be in the same crap and uh so it's got that that sort of argument you know so i feel very conflicted um because at 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 one at, at a basic human level i think we should all condemn AFSPA and any laws as such but again in a very specific context there's also a valid argument to say, okay, this is not fair, and if you want to treat us all equally, then apply the law equally as well. You know, so especially in a situation where, in, like to today,
0: honest. you said it's it's not it's been lifted from Mfal, which is not facing the bulk of the violence right now, and so in the sure. area which is not facing the bulk of the violence, where the where the army is not needed, there's 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 you know no impunity uh, for the army, but in the right. area that is facing the violence, where the army is needed, but they're not acting. Um, and if they are acting, we're, we're going to touch on that. They're acting in support of the attackers. There is immunity uh, applied. Yeah, it's very uneven. Yeah, so so that that's that's there, and
1: um, and bringing it back. So that's you know. So I think that's something I think is very important to note uh, about AfSPA. What's what's uh, uh, what AfSPA means in the present context in Manipur. But then, uh, on the question of Irom Sharmila, like I think she's probably one of the most well respected activists. Um, and I, you know, I have the utmost respect for her because I feel like she was very, very ideological and she truly believed in uh, the work she was doing. right? So even to the point where uh, I remember she had written uh, an op piece or like some sort of article. Uh, and she was on the record um, when, I think, uh, the chief minister, if I'm not, I I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure on the timeline, but the chief minister back then was uh, Ibobi Singh from uh, the Congress Party. Uh, he, again, uh, Amitai CM, but nevertheless. So under his uh, rule, un, un, or under his chief ministership, I think the AFSPA, um, you know, was being lifted from the valley districts. And I think he had approached... Uh, and asked her to stop her hunger strike because it had been kind of lifted. And I remember her making this beautiful point about, uh, I mean, don't we want afspa to be lifted from the entirety of the state of Manipur and not just from the Valley District? So as long as afspa is still in effect in the Hill District, how can I stop my hunger strike? You know, so I think that was a very beautiful argument that she made. Um, Unfortunately, I think, she was truly a lone voice um not only in the state of uh, manipur but like even within the meitei community you know and i believe uh, uh the made up the 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 women torchbearers like the now who, who have kind of become more like a vigilante group uh they were very uh, you know proactive in in her in her uh strike effort hunger strike effort where that kind of uh, lifted her up as uh, as a deity, right? And it, it was almost like when she decided to break her fast... And Although they were angry at her for deciding
0: like, to break. Yeah. I, 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 like I've seen that to, before. Actually, I think she's commented on that before. has uh, uh, commented yeah, on that before about her, exactly. her upset about being treated that way.
1: Yeah. It, it, so it was almost like, you know... Uh, it was all, and I think there are many other writers and like journalists who have done a much better job of describing the situation than. And I'm just paraphrasing what I've, uh, what I've heard them say is it was almost like uh, they had given her up to die, and the fact that she refused to die and she wanted to live a normal life really upset them, which is, kind of, like at at that point I was puzzled, but given the fact of like what i've seen in the last few months i was like okay there's a huge radicalization that has taken place in society right under our noses that like human lives individual human lives don't seem to matter anymore you know and the fact that she wanted to get married and she wanted to lead a normal life after 16 years like you said 16 years of being on a non-stop hunger strike that should earn you. 16 you know lives in heaven for if, if you ask me if there's such a thing, you know uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, that is uh so I mean, all that to say I have a huge amount of respect for her and like what she had done. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I can uh, say the same thing about uh, the society that she comes from and what it has kind of devolved into because all the sane minds, I think they've kind of either been drowned out or they're they're, they're too afraid to um, say anything rational and like saying anything,
0: you know? Well, so, you know, of course, at the present moment of uh, what the uh, world with Manipur needs, um, in my opinion, probably I would, would think in your opinion as well, is somebody like the Iron Lady of, of Manapur to step forward and become the new one to hunger strike for hopefully not 16 years, but hunger strike for an end to the conflict. Somebody from Manipur, uh, somebody maybe even again from, from the uh, Mete community um, and, and a call for an end to the violence through that form of protest. But you were talking about the radicalization, uh, how these things have devolved. And now's the time, finally, all this groundwork laid. Let's get around to some details on that. Um, so on May 3rd, 2023, violence broke out against the Kukizomi community. And it's still ongoing. And now I want you um, uh, laying a little bit of groundwork for, for what's happening before we get into uh, some of the reasons for why and and some perspectives and opinions on it. Um, what's happening? Um, how? What's the level of violence, um, at least as far as what we know? And um, also, I mean, there's been a lot of... Pretty horrific incidents of sustained systematic violence in the just in the past 20 years, 21st century in India. You know, going back to 2002 in Gujarat, uh, 2008 in Odisha, you had uh, 2020 in Delhi, and then you've had a whole bunch uh, in between musafarnagar Farnagar and in UP, Uttar Pradesh, and, and elsewhere. But what's happening right now in Manipur is. Uh, far and away worse than any of those incidents that have occurred over the past 20 years. Can you describe, lay out a little bit what's happening and just how bad is it?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, Peter, I, I, I won't go into too many details because I feel like, you know, where the violence started and, uh, you know, the sequence of events, I, I don't really place too much importance on that because, like, a, a lot of people would agree that the the explosion of the violence happened on May the 3rd. Right. So that's when uh colonies um of uh like Kukizomi tribal homes uh in uh, the Imphal Valley were raised to the ground. And and right? for, and for home, non-South
0: Asian listeners like a colony is basically like a neighborhood, right?
1: Yeah. So th- yeah think of it as a settlement or like a via yeah, neighborhood pretty much. Yeah. Um so, uh, my own family home um was uh, burnt uh, by a mob over a thousand strong. Uh, my they, they I mean they almost killed my father. Um, you know my my entire uh my eldest brother's entire family has been kind of dispossessed. Everything they owned, they barely uh, escaped with what they had on themselves. Right. Um. So it's uh. Um, and the violence started before, at the night before, you know, before it reached my family home. And right now, as we speak, uh, my mother is uh, buried uh, on our family property in Nymphal, and we don't have access to her grave site right now. Uh, And every single thing that my parents' generation worked for, like every single thing has been destroyed. So in terms of and kind of zooming out we're not the exception like everybody's house maybe somebody will argue there are a few homes standing here and there but okay but out of 100 if uh, like you destroy 90 then okay if you if you say it's not complete unless 100% is uh, destroyed then okay i i don't i don't mean to argue that like so I, i'm just saying for all practical purposes Everything the Kukizomis have owned in Imphal Valley has been destroyed, right? So, and um, what kind of started off as a destruction of property very quickly devolved into individual attacks, rapes, um, and uh, you know, uh, on uh, July nineteenth, uh, twentieth, some, some, some in, in that time frame, there was also that viral video that came out of the two women who were paraded naked, gang-raped, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the violence, it's, at least for Manipur, it's not something we've seen uh, in the past, this scale of violence. Uh, And today, I think it's not an exaggeration to say, you know, we are uh, entering uh, a civil, you know, because we're, uh, like, the violence, I mean, you can say it has subsided, but that's just because there are central security forces in the buffer zones kind of keeping the two sides uh, separate as best as they can. Um, So it's kind of, um, to set the stage, I think it's always very difficult to um, just uh, briefly describe what has happened so far without going uh, into a lot of the details, you know, and um part of what you said about it being um very very intentional uh kind of an attack is is, is because the, the way we've been targeted the way there were like these quote-unquote surveys marking tribal homes with sure, yeah, like, and, physical pain and,
0: and like do you want to go into that like i mean because of course like we can talk all about the details, how many dead, like you know, what incidents exactly. of violence, that sort of thing. But um, you know, the 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 why is a maybe more important uh, question. And um, that you mentioning these surveys and that sort of thing. You want to talk a little bit about uh, this this uh, like belief uh, that there's was some kind of uh, it wasn't just like the spontaneous outburst of of one no, day. No, yeah, uh, it, it definitely meetings, like, well, felt well,
1: very. Uh, yeah, it felt very premeditated because um, a lot of the tribal homes, you know, like I think months before the violence actually broke out, there are so many accounts of uh, different people, um, you know, kind of being asked different questions um, as to their ethnicity and different things. And
0: it, by, and by there are government also, officials being asked?
1: We don't really know, right? Because it's like, some random person shows up at your house, starts asking you questions, uh, seeing that they're surveying this or that. Like most people don't think that they're being prepared for ethnic cleansing, right? Like you just you just say, oh, it's, uh, you're just chatting away and you're just telling them, okay, whatever. Like I'm from this tribe, that tribe. Like nobody ever in our wildest uh, imagination would have uh, thought that, okay, we're going to be wiped out, you know, uh, in, in a few months, right? Like, we, so there was no paranoia and maybe part of the problem was being so naive about it and not being aware of what was brewing because all these things because there's no way that every single um you know, Kukizomi settlement uh in the imphal valley could have been wiped out in a day or two in in the way it did and like you know there might be some uh, special intelligence, uh, people who might know where everybody is, they might have uh, their own databases built up, but for a mob to know precisely where each person lived and go and single them out, uh, there's, there has to be coordination, you know, like it cannot, uh, um, it cannot work like that, you know, or like it, 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 it you either need time or you need coordination. You know, over <laughs> over time, maybe a mob can figure it out, but not in that precise way, in that short amount of time, right? And now there are also several video uh, evidences that have shown that, that there are these little red paint markings on all, all the tribal, uh, you know, houses, for example, right? And, and not only that, but, uh, like, there are also uh, many video evidences now showing that the state police, the Manipur state police, uh, leading uh, uh, these uh, uh, the crowds, the mobs uh, into the, the the tribal settlements, tribal neighborhoods, uh, making sure that they don't have any resistance, and then letting them do uh, their thing, right? And uh, and uh, not so, so with, the, with the with
0: the. Pre planning, though, like with you know the markings on the houses and the, the strange people showing up and and doing these surveys in in the community. Were there just there some other things that I think I've heard about, like uh, from the governmental level, that there was some changes that, that were implemented in the in the few months leading up. Uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one uh, having to do with even like gun ownership or something like that.
1: That that's I mean, a lot of people will even like okay that is what you're saying is true but before we come to that like if if we want to talk about it from that perspective i think it's only fair to go all the way back to um like even the, the founding of the state uh, because you know manipur only became a state in the in the in the 70s early 70s right so ever since then um the the hold on power and, and as far as the political and the economic representation of um, the Kukizomis, we've always been uh underrepresented and uh we've always been the underdogs in this in in this setup right so uh the and going back to what we had talked about previously about the scheduled tribes the status and the constitutional protection uh of what we had uh was um a protection of the right to our land our ancestral land our, the the hill districts that that we call our ancestral lands so this was one of the provisions in the constitution that kind of protected the the tribal people from being completely annihilated right because um until like barely a few decades uh, uh, ago most of our people were illiterate like you know, uh, we didn't we didn't have like the basic uh, tools to kind of even fight for our own rights, right? So, but uh, uh, and the reason why I'm seeing this is that the the stuff that B. R. Ambedkar, you know, made sure was there in the constitution to pro- uh, protect us was denied to us. Like for example, the sixth uh, schedule of the Indian Constitution, which is basically the autonomy that is um, guaranteed to all these different, you know, tribal groups, uh, it was completely denied in, in in the Manipur instance. In fact, uh, we even have a specific article in the Indian Constitution, three seventy one C, which was specifically designed for the hill districts of Manipur, so that we could govern ourselves. I mean, so they had these, you know, toothless hill area council. Uh, that the state government set up but it was never really authorized to have any real power for example so it has been ongoing right it has been an ongoing thing since you could argue independence and the formation of the state and so on ongoing as far as disenfranchisement
0: disenfranchisement of cookies yeah
1: yeah and so firstly like we also talked about like the budgetary imbalance where there was no infrastructure development in the hill districts there was no investment um uh, whether in terms of healthcare whether in terms of uh, any sort of facility education or sports like whatever you, you name it right so there was never any anything of that sort to kind of establish some kind of equity like there was nothing to you know level the playing field for the people who were historically advantaged and p- people who were historically disadvantaged so there was like the effort in that regard was minimal to non-existent then uh, uh, i think if i'm not mistaken uh, 2015 comes and there's this like controversial three bill um uh, three bills that were passed uh, which had to be rescinded because there was a huge opposition in the hill districts which was kind of seen by a lot of the tribal people as an attempt by the state government and the majority community to grab even the last little piece of protection we had, which was our land, right? And this, uh, I I think a lot of people would also hold the current chief minister in Singh as uh, like one of the main masterminds in kind of trying to structure that those, uh, I mean, they call it some kind of land reform bill and like, you know, tying it into like some inner line permit uh, issues and, and attempt to basically completely disregard the tribal ownership of these uh, historical, like ancestral lands, right? So it, it comes from that. So it comes from that. And then we have a few years of... Um, um, some sort of uh, like something that resembles peace, you know. And so, I- I- even in that time, there was that buildup of these um, like the radicalization that we were talking about, right? So, uh, some stuff that started off as cultural organizations like, like all these groups sudden, like
0: RM R- 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 by Tengal and RM by Tengal.
1: Yeah, so all these things started happening. And then, what you're talking about is uh, I think maybe in late 2022, early 2023, um, a lot of the licensed arms from the hill districts were being taken back.
0: Which, which and, I just want to, I just want to preface um, because uh, my impression, um, not not deeply informed, but my impression from what I've seen of, of Monopur is that it seems like it's. Uh, somewhat different from a lot of the rest of India, where gun ownership is very limited. In most of India, um, it, you know, it's legally very heavily restricted. But in in Manipur, is it is it generally easier to get a gun? In for, um, for to be honest, uh, I, I, I
1: I won't. Yeah, I I won't be. I, I'm. I, I'm I'm probably not going to be. Uh, I I don't know the 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 specific facts on the ground so i i am probably not uh, qualified to answer that question uh, in any direct way but sure. just from the numbers themselves yes because uh we have a tradition of uh being hunters and gatherers for example you know like the the especially among the tribal um tribal population so gun ownership for i uh, like and and when we say gun ownership like, I, I think uh, before uh, at least the American audience, uh, we have to make sure, you know, th- these are like single barrel, double we're barrel. We're not talking like about assault hunting. rifles. These we're are ta- not yeah. A- AR 15s or. Like, you well, know,
0: I, like, yeah, what I've seen, I mean, we're probably talking about like early 20th century style weaponry, something along yeah, those yeah. lines. Yeah, yeah. It's like
1: the, yeah. I, I don't even know the name, the brand names properly, like the Winchester types, you know, like the Enfield, uh, like, maybe. More-
0: yeah but yeah old old style weaponry not definitely not modern materials
1: but okay. at the same but, time there were like a record amount of um new licenses that were being issued in the in the in the valley districts you know so there's this uh imbalance again right so now in hindsight people are saying so if all that's happening like everything that happened starting on May 3rd was it pre-planned or, you know, did it just automatically, organically, you know, explode? You know, because the groundwork was laid quite well, right? And 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 <laughs> to be honest, um, the arguments I've also heard from the, the other side also has some validity to it because everything, it, it's kind of a buildup in some sort of way, right? Because, like, we've not even touched on, like, the poppy cultivation uh, and, like, what a lot of people are screaming about um the, "Quote unquote," the narco terrorism they, they call it, right? That itself is a huge element of uh, I think what has happened in uh, in Manipur, you know. Sure. Uh, I, I, so,
0: would, you, would you like to touch on that for a minute? Because yeah, um, basically, I, think, I mean, uh, let me let me from my perspective, what I'm hearing, familiar with the narrative that I've seen, it's all over the place. Uh, is that the Kukizomi people um, are primarily, mostly narco terrorists engaged in cultivation of poppies to to produce heroin for cross border drug smuggling, and that uh, in addition to that, many of them are also residing illegally in in Manipur and are not actually from Manipur, but have, have crossed over the border, that sort of thing. Um, and and that that argument I've seen very widely used um, as some kind of like almost like a justification, although they don't call it that, but a justification to to excuse or um, overlook uh, the violence that's that's uh, being uh, used against the the cookie zombies. So yeah, right.
1: And I think it's. It, again, uh, anything to do with Manipur, Peter, it's it's never a simple matter to
0: discuss. It's never a <laughs> so clear case.
1: If, if, if you don't mind, yeah, let, let's un- unpack that uh, maybe one by one. So, you know, with the poppy cultivation, I think there's no denying that there's poppy cultivation in, in Manipur, in especially in the hill districts, uh, definitely in the Kukizomi areas, right? So I don't think anybody denies that. Um, But the point is also it is not only in the Kukizomi areas and the people involved are also not only Kukizomis who are involved. First of all, I think people have to understand that um, these farmers who are cultivating poppy, they've been traditionally, you know, like um, what they call like June farmers who kind of burn down sections of uh, the forest and grow something and then move on to the next patch and so and i'm not arguing that 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 is something that is to be um um uh, upheld in some in some sort of way as in like a an, an awesome customary thing that we should never improve on you know so but the point i'm making is that these are people who are highly impoverished they don't have a way of supporting uh, their livelihoods and in the midst of this if Somebody comes to them and says, "Hey, if you grow this poppy, you're going to make so much more money," um, because they're—I mean, the land like needs, you know, refertilization and and such. And these are like, you know, unless the uh, government is helping people gain their livelihoods in some other way, in kind of encouraging different kinds of other other kinds of industries, they're kind of left uh, to their own, right? So in that mix. You can kind of imagine how easy it is for somebody to come and say, hey, if you grow this, uh, you make, you know, two, three times more the money you would normally make or whatever. Like, I am I mean, I, I'm not an expert on like how much more money they make or not. Sure. I'm just making the general point that first, um, it is not only the Kuki who are involved in this. So-called poppy cultivation. Well, well,
0: and if I may interject, I mean, I think that idea, you know, because it's being used to kind of smear the cookie zombies as, as um, almost like as a prejudicial uh, um, or a dehumanizing argument. The Kuki are somehow like naturally predisposed to to grow poppies. But that also that that argument ignores the reality of the global drug trade, which is no you know no apologetics for it but the reality is that the global drug trade is the great equalizer it's an equal opportunity business where there is no race religion or creed yeah <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's uh it's funny in a very sad way which is true you know what what, <laughs> what he's saying is true um and and also i think even um uh when uh, brinda thunojam uh, who is the, the ex uh, police officer uh, herself from a uh, community, like uh, her, a lot of her work has kind of uh, proven the fact uh, that, you know, uh, people involved in the drug trade, in the narco trade are not just zombies. Like there are a substantial chunk, if you break it down into the percentages and like, we can go into the specifics of what she had um, reported and all. But um, there's, uh, there's, no doubt that the the main people who control the industry uh, live in the Imphal uh, Valley. You know, they don't live in the hill districts uh, like uh, cultivating poppy. You know, like people who run the show are not uh, from the Zomi's. Uh, you know, uh, there might um, and I'm not saying that there's zero involvement. There might be some people at the higher levels of the trade, too.
0: I'm but not the, saying that. But what I'm saying, however, right, you cut it, the a, drug bosses are not usually the farmers
1: yeah ex- exactly and uh, it's it's like and even the chief minister himself has been like um, accused of uh, being one of the major kingpins in this whole thing right and and i don't know enough about the specific personal connections so i'm i'm gonna just stay try to stay away from like um you know talking about uh, that aspect so that
0: that's one But it thing. is an allegation that's been rather credibly raised. absolutely absolutely
1: yeah. and 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 with with some very strong evidence you know, and especially with this Brinda, she's on the record saying that she was pressured uh, by the chief minister to release one of the major uh, drug kingpins that she arrested herself. You know, so that is not something that it's, it's not my opinion. You know, that's her report. And like, she is one of the most vocal uh, critics of the chief minister in that regard. You know, and uh, um, so so I'll I'll leave it at that. You know, so that that all that to say that uh, the drug trade is a problem in Manipur. Uh narco terrorism, you know, like I'll even accept the term narco terrorism. Okay, it is a problem in Manipur, but the Kukizomis are not the only ones to blame. Right? they like the problem is much bigger than just one small community. It's like it's much deeper than that. And we need if we want to address this uh in a constructive way, we have to go beyond like labeling an entire community of
0: that it's more so that, problem, first... not a cookie zomi problem and and i don't think you're probably going to be able to deal with the issue of, of the drug trade existing as an underlying social issue within moniper if right. uh, you have this ongoing anti-anti uh anti-cookie conflict anti-cookie yeah ethnic cleansing. I, I would
1: i would i would I wouldn't even call it a manipur problem. I'd call it an India India Myanmar problem. it's a it's a regional problem, you yeah. know so it's it's, mm-hmm. it's not the thing that like the manipur is just a small little uh, you know section in this uh, like much larger problem. Um, so and the, the whole thing about the uh, in, illegal infiltrators and all this kind of argument, yes, that's that's true. I mean, there might be some, but even by the state government's own account, they're like they cannot prove more than uh, two, three thousand people, you know. And uh, and if you look at uh, major, major uh, like the uh, the other um, neighbor to our south, uh, Mizoram, they've they've had like refugees uh, in the uh, you know tens of thousands who have taken shelter there, you know. So uh, it's it's kind of a very strange argument for them to make uh, uh, because they're kind of, it's just a way of um, rationalizing. Humanizing. Yeah, e- exactly. And just kind of saying that these people don't even belong here. So even if we kill them, then it's okay. That that sort of, uh, that's the end to, the, to that logic, right? Um, and um, the other very interesting point, I, I think uh, one of the um i think major amit bansal i believe like he's uh, an ex army uh, person who's uh, you know served extensively in the, the northeast and specifically manipur uh, he's also uh, made a really interesting argument that this whole you know um uh, debate around narco terrorism and poppy cultivation it's actually kind of a moot point in some sense because um um uh, uh, lab manufactured drugs have uh, apparently overshadowed like the, the natural cultivation uh, drug, you know, way more, you know, like, uh, and it, it makes sense, right? So why would you uh, farm something, wait for months for it to mature?
0: Risk and losing your risk harvest anyways, because destroyed? you're working with, with the season's. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah where you can just buy a bunch of chemicals and manufacture something in a lab that you can control much tighter right so he's arguing that the percentage of the poppy based drugs less than 5% of that whole trade you know so it's very interesting is all i'm saying you know like and i'm by no means the expert uh, in in what goes on in the background there but i'm i'm also saying that that's something to be considered right so um All all these things, um, you know, it's just, I think it's just an attempt to find different things to, um, you know, dehumanize others and just kind of set them up so that when you go out to annihilate them, it's acceptable.
0: You know, and you can live with with your own conscience as well if you buy yeah. into your own propaganda. Now, with exactly. with this dehumanization, I mean, this conversation, Lean, I'm I'm you know feeling right now like this this can't be the only time we talk about monopure because you know there's so much to to unravel here. Um, but as we like begin to move to wrap up uh there's some more aspects i really want to get to and, and ask you about um like this dehumanization um that uh is being used to maybe uh, help to help to kill the consciences of of the attackers and uh, allow them to live with themselves the attackers a lot of them are these groups like the uh, armed by tengal and, and, and uh, the uh, Mete Lipun, these, these basically militant or uh, it sounds like armed by Tengol is practically a paramilitary organization, which is now armed because they've raided police armories. They're now armed since the launch of the conflict with modern weaponry. We were just talking about how uh, broadly the within Manipur uh, a lot of the weapons you know tend to be these older style. I've seen the pictures. I think they're probably like early 20th century like like british uh army type of weapons very out of date uh the weapons that uh, are armed by tangle uh, and the attackers are armed with today are much more like basically like looks like modern ak-47s or that sort of that sort of weapon uh, assault assault weapons military style so um, I've seen, for instance, um, you know, talking about the dehumanization, I believe it was the head of Arunbhai Tengal. He was on a show with uh, the senior journalist in India, uh, Karanthapar, um, where he basically outright said that the goal, his desire is to wipe out uh, the Kukizomi people. And I want you within within that context, you know, knowing that, I mean, you've used the term ethnic cleansing a couple of times already, um, and you've talked already about, about the police a little bit, uh, just from, from your perspective, from your opinion and what you see in the evidence, the the um, feelings, uh, sentiments of the Zomi people in general. I mean, does this come across as, one, is it um, ethnic cleansing that's occurring with and I especially want you know, like, to know this in in context of like International listeners um, who who may not be uh, familiar with the with the specifics of what's happening right now. So it's a context that's happening um, uh, in complicity with with the police. You described how in some of these colonies neighborhoods, the police are actually entering in uh, in company with the mobs and and preventing the Kuki Zomi people from defending themselves. Um, that uh, so complicity at the state level with the police, with the gov- state government, and then also like um, there's been almost total silence about this. No, no real action, and some military deployed, armed forces deployed, but no real action at the at the national level from the central government, and they basically kept their mouth shut about it. Um, uh, f- from the Kuki Zomi perspective, why do you think that that's the response from the national government? And, um, yeah, go ahead. Why is a very, uh, <laughs> that's a, it's a very, uh, difficult
1: question, but I'll go back to what you started with. Uh, and I believe you're talking about Promote Singh, who is the leader of, uh, the Meite Lipun actually, uh, who went on Karan Thapar and basically threatened to annihilate, uh, the Kukizomis entirely from the state of Manipur. So, um it seemed like he wanted to escalate the ethnic cleansing into full scale genocide that's that's basically what he threatened um
0: Back to, the sound of to it. be honest uh, yeah, he yeah. he made no secret of it amazingly on a national, yeah, national program and,
1: yeah and the the thing is um maybe you might disagree with me but to me somebody like him uh, is easier to understand and kind of you know what to do um, you know to because he's he just speaks the most like outlandish things that uh, you would never imagine anybody with a sane mind to even speak of those things right so and he's also gone uh, to the extent of saying uh, if you are like the true um identifying characteristics of who is a Manipuri is somebody who likes ngari, which is like a fermented fish. As if the Métis are only people who like fermented food. You know, like the tribal people, we we like uh, fermented food as much as they do, if if not more. So like, he's that kind of a character. You know, so I think on one hand, I think we have to take him seriously because uh, even if he sounds like ridiculous and outlandish, there are enough people that he has influence over. So, and we've seen from their actions that they're not afraid of uh, massacring and like, uh, you know, um, inflicting violence to that level. So I think that, um, so let's leave that aside. So, okay, whatever he said, we have to, you know, be very vigilant and like keep that in mind. But at the same time, I'm more worried about people who are, who who, who try to seem balanced middle of the road and kind of try to talk about this uh, violence and this issue as if it's a like two equals fighting it out. No, we're not two equals fighting it out. the the state government has taken a blatant side and what started off as something that we anecdotally um, like felt, from people who had firsthand information on the ground. Now we have ample video evidence where the state uh, troops are blatantly siding with the Métis side. There's no doubt. It's not like how I feel. It's like, I've seen it, you know? <laughs> so there's no, yes, there's no I, I doubt about I think
0: it looks, I, I have a fee, I, I think the state's probably complicit. No, it's actually on camera. You could see the police are in company with the mob.
1: Yeah, it, 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 absolutely complicit. You know, and the, the chief minister, like uh, most Kukizomis will consider him the architect of this genocide uh, and this ethnic cleansing. Uh, but then in the monsoon session of the Indian parliament, the home minister Amit Shah was on the record on the floor of the Indian parliament saying that he was not about to dismiss the chief minister of the state because he has been cooperative. That's the word he used, right? Uh, and, and, and when so, he says
0: that, uh, when it, when, and the home minister, for those uh, home listening, the home minister in India is like the person in charge of internal law and order in the entire country. So when, when Amit Shah, the home minister, goes there and he basically says the chief minister in Manipur has been cooperative, but then like we're seeing this complicity of police forces on camera. One has to question, what does the home minister mean when he says the chief minister is being cooperative, cooperative in implementing... And uh, this ethnic cleansing one might ask yeah
1: exactly and you know a, a lot of i mean people might think you're just being provocative but that is a real question you know we're not being provocative we're asking what do you mean by that like what 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 do the state of affairs have to be in order for you to remove this person from office this extremely divisive person from office and like bring in some sense of law and order right and uh, as a travel person it really finds I mean it really feels awkward to me to even kind of talk about law and order in that way you know because almost kind of makes me sound like I'm part of uh, the ruling uh, ruling, ruling class where I, I want law and order you know but <laughs> in this way our survival depends on it uh, you know so I
0: well, it's a, I, it's I a very different type. It's a very different one has to contextualize. When we mean law and order, we don't mean like police patrolling the the lower income neighborhoods and and pulling anybody over that exactly. that the looks exactly. at them funny. We mean like police arresting armed militants that are wandering around slaughtering men, <laughs> exactly. women, and children. There's a big difference there.
1: Yeah, and thanks for clarifying that, Peter. Because a lot of the language, because in India also we use English a lot, you know. But the context, uh, especially for an American audience, it may lose uh, a lot of the meaning. You know what, what, uh, what we actually mean. <laughs> so, thanks for clarifying that. So, I think um, going back to what we were discussing. So, um, when you ask why, there, there, it's that's a uh, really hard question to answer because it's like now we're in month 5 and still no end in sight Um, not even like the the prime minister has not even said anything more about it and it's almost like after the G20 summit um, I think they, I really think they believe they can just get away with just ignoring the whole you know violence and like they think they'll just not say a thing and people will just forget about it. And sadly, that's probably what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I, I feel sad about it, uh, but I mean, I, I just have to keep doing what I can. And well,
0: we live in the microwave, microwave generation or I mean, beyond microwave. That was that was what, 50 years ago, Uh but, you know, that that type of a generation where our attention span is, is you know, negative five seconds. And so I, I agree with you. And I think that reminds me because you were talking at the outset about like in D.C., one of your first um, uh, um, entrees in the activism uh, out there kind of with you described some feeling of a, a naivete that you thought all we have to do is just bring this information to the attention of the international audience of of modi maybe even uh, and certainly of the u.s government and, and they'll be certain to like take action and that now you know months later that that sounds like it's faded and, and you, know, you know we're looking at the conclusion of the g20 and nobody seems to have raised anything Manapur uh, G20 happened in India and the, the violence in Manapur, which is still ongoing, doesn't seem to have made uh, any waves, rocked any boats as far as as far as even uh, making it onto the agendas of the world leaders that were coming to India for the G20. Um, so, unfortunately, we are actually beginning to run out of time. But... <laughs> um, i wanted to, I wanted to wrap wrap up because we got to come back to this and soon, but I wanted to wrap up with a, a couple of final thoughts from you. Um, you know, one is, I mean, I, I think I, I have this question, what's your impression of the way the international community, uh, especially the governmental level has 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 responded to this? But you're welcome to touch on that uh, with with a timely manner. Um, But I I think, like, we've kind of already touched on that. Uh, The EU Parliament, I think, did issue a rather strongly worded statement, a resolution, I believe, a month or two ago. Uh, They're the only major body that I'm aware of that's really done anything of that sort. Beyond that, from what I've seen, the international community is largely silent. But I wanted to ask you um, about your impressions of uh, the um the like social uh sphere um and their response especially here in north america um, i know you've been involved in some protests and um you know the kukizomi diaspora is you know in or well the kukizomi community in monifer is already pretty small the kukizomi diaspora is infinitesimal uh, from my understanding, uh, but it's also because of that, it's also from what I've seen, a pretty tight knit community. Um, now they've been very active um, and I've, uh, you, and I, I've, I've met many others who are brand new to this scene, uh, but nevertheless, they put their lives on hold, their professions on hold as much as possible to a large extent to mobilize and respond to this. What do you think of the response that's occurred so far? and how, how how do you feel about the response um beyond the kukizomi community with the rest of the indian diaspora with um the rest of the north american community beyond the indian american community um and then what else uh what has been done um and how is how has it personally impacted you because you talked about what's happened with your family back in Manipur, but like here in north america How's it, how's it impacting you, you know, despite not living there in, in uh, midst of violence in monitor? Yeah, th-
1: th- thanks again, Peter. So it's, uh, you know, I think as far as, le- let me just start by saying the, the outpouring of support from the diaspora community and other people who, who care about human rights in general, it's been very overwhelming and like extremely beautiful. You know, So let me start by saying that. And even something as like you inviting me to this uh, podcast to just chat about stuff and have this like long form uh, interview or like call it more like a chat. You know, it's uh, I think these are things that I feel give us hope. Um, and I know it's a it's it's unfortunately going to be a longer struggle. Because until this happened, people forget about the Kukizomis, probably people didn't even know where Manipur was or if Manipur even existed, right? So we have a long, uh, long way ahead of us, uh, but uh, we're determined. We're very determined because it's the survival of our people um, and not just our people. The, the thing is, we have to start seeing this as uh, we have to start seeing this for what it actually is. Because this level of violence and like attack on the very existence of our of, of my people, the Kukizomis, would have never happened if it was not for the radicalization or the climate of hate in India with the you know BJP and RSS like Hindutva agenda going on right now. So it's really important, even though there's a huge ethnic element to this, there's you cannot deny the overwhelming um like religious angle as well because most uh kukizomis i'd say close to 100% are um christians you know I, I i was brought up in a christian family even though like in, in full disclosure i mean i i i don't necessarily you know uh, i'm not a religious person but i'm culturally still christian i'd say you know um so it is it is one of those things where uh if you care about humanity, if you care about religious freedom, if you care about, like, uh, democracy or making the world more democratic, you should care about what's happening in India, what's happening in my group, uh, And, um, you know, it, this is not just a tribal thing. This is not just ST demand or, like, you know, uh, ancestral lands of the tribal thing. Cause those are kind of like the tip of the spear, but the broader issue is, do you want a more just world or do you, do you want a, a increasingly majoritarian uh, autocratic world, you know, where there's, uh, you know, democracy for the majority, but um, what do you call it? For all the rest of the minorities, it's, you know, authoritarianism, you know, so it's uh, that's to me, uh, where, where the line is. And I think, um, you know, we have a lot of work uh, cut out for us, uh, but even as we speak, uh, this just this past weekend, there was a demonstration in Denver, for example, uh, Zomi Inquan, uh, DC had an event. Uh, and even as we speak, uh, Nyang and Florence are in Geneva uh, with the Human Rights Council like kind of trying to raise our uh, questions, I mean, raise our concerns and uh, question the uh, UN community to uh, to see what, what we can do and hold India to account uh, for not being responsible and like, you know, going around calling itself the largest democracy in the world um, and not uh, even doing the basic, basic thing that uh, you should uh, do to protect your own citizens. Um, you know, so I think um, and as far as the response from the Western governments, I think um, we're very grateful for uh, whatever, you know, um, recognition or like support or acknowledgement that we've gotten. Like, for example, the the um, we've heard back from the Canadian Prime Minister's office acknowledging uh, the letter that we had sent initially. But again, we still have a lot of work to do on our, our end to kind of... Uh, uh, requests for more specific things like we've got petitions uh, ongoing and uh, I think in line with your own work uh, with um, you know asked um, members of congress to talk about this issue on the floor of the house and like what you had also pursued you know with representative Rokhanna uh, along those same lines so I think we'll um, you know it's a it's a big wake up call for us. It's uh, a wake up call for the body of Christ. It's a wake up call for indigenous people around the world. Um, and uh, you know we're not we're not going to just lay down and die. You know we're going to fight to the best we can. And uh, yeah, I very much appreciate uh, the opportunity. And uh, yeah, would love to talk more if there's uh, if there is room. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Any
0: any quick final thoughts?
1: No, Peter. I think, uh, you know, uh, to, to dive uh, deep into the details of the issue, I think we can spend, uh, you know, uh, a lot more time. But uh, like I said, uh, uh, we appreciate everybody's solidarity, your solidarity, and, um, you know, uh, please uh, keep us in mind and uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll keep reaching out and, and do the best we can and fight
0: for our survival. We don't well, have
1: um, much of a choice.
0: <laughs> and maybe, maybe at one point when we're diving deep in, we can uh, do it over a cookies only uh, a traditional meal, because I haven't tasted that. And I, I would love to discover what it's like. So, with that absolutely. said, Mister Mister Lean Gante, thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to uh, conversing with you again. Oh, same same to you. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and follow for more to come as we look forward to dialoguing once again on DOSA.